Well, that was beautiful, and thank you, Stacy, for just leading us uh, and reminding us how much we need the Lord, and I'm prayerful that, um, just praying that you'll walk away from this gathering um, needing God more than anything else. Uh, and if you're here for the first time at Windsor Road, we are delighted. I'm Randy. I'm, I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. Um, and uh, so we're in a teaching series uh, on uh, what biblical leadership looks like, whether you happen to be a leader of a company of a thousand or whether you're um, a, a single parent with one child, okay? And uh, these principles apply really in, in both settings because they're based in God's Word. And so I'm going to direct us to a passage of Scripture here in just a moment, but um, oh, it was just so beautiful to hear your voices. Uh, I would like for us to pray the Lord's Prayer together as a church family, and then we'll, uh, we'll proceed with our teaching today, all right? Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. and Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, Stephen Covey, the late Stephen Covey, um, has written several books that really revolutionized thinking for uh, leadership in the marketplace, in the business world. Probably his most famous book is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he wrote other books. One is called First Things First. And in this book, First Things First, uh, Covey tells about a presentation that he made to a large group uh, about one's character and one's inner life, one's heart. After his presentation, there was a Q&A time. And someone from the audience stood and was kind of in a complaining mode and said, Stephen, how do we get the principle-centered leadership that you've been talking about? How do we get principle-centered leadership into the Congress? And the audience was like, yeah, yeah, you know? How do we get principle-centered leadership into the Congress? And Stephen Covey... Uh, answered that question with a question. Oh, good teachers do that. Covey replied with this question. Well, how do you treat your wife? To which the guy replied, what's that got to do with it? And then Stephen Covey went in for the kill. He said, because public policy is private morality writ large. Just let that sink in. Public policy is private morality writ large. In other words, he was saying all public behavior stems from private behavior. So in the final analysis, there's really no such thing as organizational behavior. 
Rather, it's all the behavior of the people in the organization. And in Covey's story, the guy got flushed in the face and didn't know what to say, so sat down. And afterwards, Stephen Covey tracked him down and said, you know, I really hope I didn't offend you, uh, but I really believe in the inside-out approach. And the guy said this. He said, you didn't offend me. You convicted me. What you said hit home. All my life, all my life, I've tended to blame other people out there for injustices. And all too often, all too often, I've taken my frustrations out on the people that I love. What you said convicted me. It hit hard. You poked me where I needed it most. That story really uh, convicted me because it's, I find it all too easy for, for me to criticize all of those crooked politicians in Springfield and all of those crookeder politicians in D.C. and all of those lawmakers over there, and if they would just get their act together over there, then our country would be better. But in the end, Stephen Covey's question pokes me. Randy, how do you treat your wife? You see, leadership functions from the inside out. It starts with a servant who has an upright heart and a skillful hand. Psalm 78 speaks of this. Psalm 78, 70 to 72. And the Lord chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. And following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. A couple of words stand out there. Servant. Servant. And, and the idea of servant leadership is, as Pastor Crawford Lawrence says, servant leadership is not a strategy. It's an identity. In other words, you know, servant leadership is not something you do to bring about change or to fulfill your agenda. That's just manipulation. Rather, servant leadership is who you are. It's your identity. It's your identity. And it begins, as Psalm 78, 72 says, with, first of all, an upright heart. So character comes first. You know, skills can vary depending upon uh, context and era of your leadership. But the character of an upright heart is timeless. And it takes an upright heart to understand, as Colin Powell once said, that leadership is not rank, title, or money. It's responsibility. It's responsibility. Which brings us to our passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. You'll find 1 Timothy chapter 3 on page 992 of your church Bibles. And Paul's first letter to Timothy, one of his, what he calls, you know, his true son in the faith. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, having sent Timothy to Ephesus, this large Christian community in the premier city of the premier province of the Roman Empire. A thriving, flourishing Christian community was established in Ephesus, meeting in house churches all across the city. 
And Paul sent Timothy this letter to coach him as to how to correct the poor leadership that's been going on. The poor leadership that's due to poor teaching and poor doctrine. Uh, Different doctrine is how Paul puts it. Different doctrine that's causing damage to the church community. Now, what do I mean by different doctrine? What what are you talking about, Randy? Well, I've got a list of some uh, traits or descriptors of this different doctrine peppered throughout 1 Timothy. We see these descriptive traits of the different doctrine in chapter 1, verse 4. These false teachers majored in the minors, in the minutiae, uh, the genealogies, and, and uh, there were uh, uh, speculative passages of Scripture that, that were really minor, uh, but they majored in, and they were elitist. So they felt that a relationship with God was just for a select few and uh, you got to follow us so that we can tell you whether or not you measure up. Very elitist. These false teachers possessed a seared conscience. Uh, they were legalistic. They were legalistic. They had certain regulations uh, that existed apart from Scripture that they made requirements on folks in the church. And they craved controversy. They loved quarrels, and they ministered for money. These were just a few of the descriptors of these actually quite skilled false teachers, you see. They were, they were, they were skilled enough to be divisive enough to cause the Apostle Paul to write this letter to Timothy so he would troubleshoot the problem, so... I mean, they were quite good at being bad. And Paul sent Timothy to remove them. So already you get an idea about what leadership often involves. When you enter the realm of leadership, you are are entering an arena of conflict. And Timothy is sent to remove those leaders and then replace them with better leaders. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 describes who these better leaders need to be. So with that, let's read 1 Timothy 3. Uh, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience." 
And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or some translations do in fact say deaconesses, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's Word. Now the big idea of this chapter, if I could just summarize it in one sentence, I think it's this. Here it is. Aspire to be the kind of leader that others would mistake you for the greatest leader, Jesus. That's it. Aspire to be. Go after. Pursue. The quality of leadership. The level of leadership. The kind of eldering and deaconing and shepherding that would make others mistake you for the one who's the greatest leader of all, Jesus. That's what we're reading here. Aspire to be the kind of leader that others would mistake you for the greatest leader, Jesus. Jesus. And I just want to unpack that big idea for us this morning. This chapter uh, is really in two sections. The first section, verses 1 through 13, speak about uh, the kind of leader, the quality of leadership to which God wants us to aspire. And then the chapter closes in verses 14 to 16 by, by showcasing the greatest leader of all, Jesus. Aspire to be the kind of leader that others would mistake you for the greatest leader, Jesus. Jesus. So let's consider verses 1 through 13. Uh, now, in these verses, the Apostle Paul identifies two key leadership responsibilities in the congregation in first century Ephesus. Uh, the overseers and the deacons. The overseers or the elders, the deacons. Um, now, who, who are the overseers? Who uh, were these elders? Well, these were actually a team, a team of servant leaders. In the first century church in Ephesus, these were godly husbands and fathers whose ministry was to oversee and shepherd the spiritual health of the congregation. They were responsible for the content. They were responsible for the gospel, for the doctrine. And they met and they prayed uh, over the congregation and served as spiritual parents as they shepherded them 
in the Lord. That's who these overseers and elders were. Who were the deacons, though? Well, the word deacon literally means servant. Servants. So while the elders were a team of servant leaders, the deacons are a team of leading servants. And in the New Testament, they consist of godly men and women, deacons and deaconesses, appointed servants whose ministry was that of helps. So the deacon teams did not govern, they assisted. And they were the church's social workers. And they met the needs of the, of the widows and the sick and uh, perhaps the seniors or, uh, or, or perhaps they provided orphan care uh, to those suffering, those who were without a, a voice. They helped in any way. Now, elders and deacons and deaconesses. I wish I had time to explain how that leadership structure uh, applies to this church family here at Windsor Road. I'd, I'd really like to take about 20 minutes and just really unpack that. What I'd really like to do, though, is make this practical for you in your leadership situation. And let me do so by saying this. In verses 1 through 13, Paul pays primary attention to the character of the leader, the heart of the leader, to the inside of the leader. Characters first. As you look through these verses, very little is mentioned about specific duties. There's some. But mostly it's character. It's the qualities that make for an upright heart. And you can understand that, can't you? I mean, you impress people at a distance with your skills, but you impact them up close with your character. See, Skills are impressive. Skills are necessary. Skills are needed. And an upright heart is paramount because an upright heart is who you are when no one's looking. And all of us here can think of highly skilled people in all sorts of vocations and disciplines and careers, highly skilled, whose lives and careers have imploded because there was something about them as a person that kept them from succeeding. Uh, there was something about them as a person. Uh, they were unable to withstand the realities of life. So biblical leadership is... Biblical leadership is not about you sitting out there watching me up here on this stage underneath these lights performing leadership. And then when I step down off the stage, I'm no longer functioning as a minister doing my public job. I've now entered my private life, right? See, our culture wants to separate public life and private life. And this is my private life, but that's my public. God does not know of that. He doesn't. Skillful hands and upright hearts need to be integrated, integrated, integrity. But it's not enough for us to simply look at these character traits and assume that, you know, Paul just wants nice boys and girls. And if you're just a nice person, everything's going to go well and swimmingly, etc., 
No. Ethics matters. <laughs> yes, ethics matters. So, but, but, you know, uh, ethics is not all that character is. I mean, it's not less, but it's not all that it is. L- let me tell you what I mean. Let's say that you were an Air Force general. And you were in charge of building a new fleet of jets. So you're the Air Force general in charge, and you're going to build this new fleet of jets. And so you summons the best engineers, and you plop them in a room. And you say, I want a new fleet of jets. What's their first question going to be? What are you going to do with this jet? What are you going to do with this plane? Well, I want it to go 600 miles per hour in an instant. And the engineers will say, okay, fine. We need to think about a different design because the present character of the plane won't withstand that kind of acceleration. It'll crumble. It'll fall apart. If you want a jet that's going to go 40,000 feet and then one that'll swoop down to the desert floor and then one that'll you know, do laps around the Arctic Circle and carry cargo and refuel in flight and go long distances, those realities affect the character of the plane. So character is everything. Character, as Henry Cloud says, is the ability to meet the demands of reality. So do these elders and deacons in Ephesus, do they possess the character, that kind of character, that kind of heart, that kind of makeup to withstand the pressures and realities of false teachers like Hymenaeus and Alexander? And can they withstand the cultural pressures of what we talked about last week, the new woman of the Roman Empire, this this gender and sexual revolution that took place in first century Roman world featuring immodest, disruptive, and sexually provocative Roman females? Do these leaders possess the poise, the character to handle, you know, Those kinds of situations. No wonder then the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, it takes character to do that. So, so in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the apostle Paul told Timothy, I have handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What did that look like? What does it look like to hand someone over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme? Well, whatever it was, it was done lovingly. You know? It was done lovingly. And that's the kind of character, that's the kind of makeup that God's leaders need to be. So character's not less than ethics, but it's a lot more. It's the ability to withstand the demands of reality. Um, I saw this in action this summer when my wife and I 
were at the airport getting ready to board a plane. And about 20 minutes before we were about ready to board, uh, I noticed that a line of people was forming behind the desk, you know, in front of the flight attendant, the, the check-in agent. And I said, well, that's kind of odd. Nobody's called anything up, you know. And then I thought, well, that's our flight. And I thought, well, I better get in line. <laughs> you know, I, because everybody else is in line. And that's another sermon. But I mean, I just thought, you know, <laughs> right? Well, I better get in line. So, so I get in line, and, um, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> our plane starts backing out of the gate, all right? And I'm thinking, well, nobody's on it. What's that about, you know? I'm kind of glad I'm in line now, but I really don't know why I'm in line. I mean, and then we heard over the intercom that our plane was experiencing what the attendant said was a major mechanical malfunction, okay? I thought, okay, well, this is good because we need not be on that plane with that situation, you know. So now everybody is in line, right, trying to rebook the flights. See where I'm going with this. Hell hath no fury than a stranded passenger in an airport, Right? And these agents, you know, who, they didn't, they didn't cause the major mechanical malfunction, but you'd have thought that they did by the way they were treated by some of the passengers, you see, whose lives had been disrupted and inconvenienced, okay? None of them, none of them go to Windsor Road Christian Church. So just to be, just to be clear, you know. Uh, and, but... Um, but that's the kind of poise. That's the kind of poise. And, and that doesn't happen without training. That doesn't happen without simulating negative customers. Those agents were professional. And, uh, and they encouraged one another. And one of the agents just about broke. Just about broke. Uh, uh, under the, really, the, the, just the unnecessary wrath of a, of a disgruntled passenger. Character. Character is the ability to meet the demands of reality. And, and that's what these particular traits are about. Because you see, there's got to be a test, right? So what's the test of character? And in verses 1 through 13, the Apostle Paul um, really basically asks two test questions for these leaders. And here they are. They're for us today, too. Test question number one. Can this person lead himself? Self-leadership. And then secondly, can this person lead their family? Self-leadership, family leadership. That's what all of these descriptors have to do in verses 1 through 13. And the issue is not sinless perfection. The issue is honesty, maturity, transparency, truth. 
First, self-leadership. And these verses become very practical when we turn them into questions like this. So is this person, uh, let's scratch that, am I? Am I above reproach? Am I sober-minded? In other words, is my thinking clear? Am I self-controlled? Am I hospitable? Is, is my home open? Can you come into my home? Can you look in my refrigerator if you want? If you want to go look in my closet, do you want to do that? That's fine. If you want to look in my basement, am I hospitable? Can this person communicate truth? Man, that, that, there is a skill. But can you communicate even complex truths? One teacher taught me that uh, the test of good teaching is the ability to explain complex truths simply, which means this. If you can't explain that truth to your mother, you probably have not grasped it yourself. Can this person communicate truth? Uh, is this person addicted to anything and in denial about it? Uh, is this person a fighter? Right? Verse 3. Are they quarrelsome? Does this person react to a reactor? Or is this person the calmer head in the room? Is this person a lover of money? And lovers of money, some, of, some lovers of money are spenders, and some lovers of money are hoarders. See. Is this person well thought of by outsiders? So what would this person's next door neighbor say? Is this person a recent convert? Very important, especially in a church context, you know. I, I mean, recent converts placed in major church leadership responsibilities, you're just asking for a disaster. You're just inviting, you're inviting pride. Self-leadership. That's what those questions are about. And then family leadership. And Paul says, you know, is this leader, is this leader a one-woman man? In other words, yes, in the first century, the Roman Empire, you know, polygamy happened, and especially in Roman culture, as I just spoke of, you know, um, you know, they were living in a very sexually provocative time, and and the culture just approved, not the church culture, but the Roman culture. In their minds, wives were for children and mistresses were for fun. Paul says, not in God's family. Must be a one-woman man. His heart must be for one. Goes back to that question, how does he treat his wife? And then what about the children? The ones that live under his roof. Huh? And the question is not, you know, are my children perfect? Uh, that's not the issue. It's not. Rather, does this leader with all dignity provide loving discipline to the children? So, do, Does the leader love the children hard? Does the leader discipline the children hard? Love them hard? Discipline them hard? I mean, these are inner world, private life questions. And if they seem excessively intrusive, or irrelevant, it may be because we've been conditioned by our culture to separate private life from public life. 
Skill from character. And that won't do in God's house. It just won't. There's one question that I think summarizes all 13 of these verses. And here it is. What would happen if the entire church were to imitate that church leader? What would happen? What what if the whole church copied their lives after that leader? It's not just a theoretical question. It's what happens. Sooner or later, the, the family you lead, the business you lead, the school you lead, the clinic you lead, the not-for-profit you lead, the church that's led, they're going to look like you. They're going to act like you. They're going to talk like you. They just will. It's true of Windsor Road. Our church's strengths and weaknesses are mostly from my strengths and weaknesses. They are. Which is why I'm challenged by something Pastor Timothy Keller Uh, once said. He wrote, the weak Christian, the nominal Christian, and the non-Christian have to be able to say, I could see myself being a Christian like that person. And then he said this, if you are preaching and your audience is learning truth, but they could never imagine being like you, responding to the world like you, thinking like you, feeling like you, that's not good. And good leaders never hide the places where they have the greatest opportunity for growth. Good leaders never hide the places where they have the greatest opportunity for growth. And in verse 13, Paul says that the fruit of godly leadership is enjoyed by both the leader and the led. You see that? Paul says, for those who serve well as deacons, and we can apply those words to the eldership as well, those who serve well gain a good standing for themselves. In other words, those who serve well, they're appreciated by the church family. And then those who serve well also possess, look at that, great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. So one of God's designs in leadership is that the leader would deepen their faith. God's just as concerned about the life of the leader as he is the life of the led. So so effective biblical leadership deepens the faith of the church and, and it disarms the skepticism of those outside the church. Uh, Because when those outside the church community, those outside the world would mock and show hostility to God's people, their accusations prove hollow because of the way Christ-centered leaders respond. I mean, think about how many more resources we have 2,000 years later than the early Christians had, really. But the resources they had were sufficient. I mean, you know, they didn't have uh, myriads of websites available for discussing why you believe what you believe and apologetics and defending the faith. They didn't have that. What did they have? They had the gospel message, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. They had the Holy Spirit living in them. They had 1 Timothy. There it is. But it was sufficient. And they had the sterling character 
of godly leaders who look like Jesus and carry themselves like Jesus and lead their families like Jesus and manage their household and finances like Jesus and sacrificially serve to bring joy to their wives. They're, they're, they love their children hard. They discipline them hard. They're, they're willing to be misunderstood. They're willing to endure unfair criticism. They lead the church well because they follow Jesus well. And you cannot be an effective leader until you've learned to be a follower. And when the community sees that, they just get curious. Why are you the way you are? And the answer is Jesus. You see, that's why Paul concludes chapter 3 with Jesus. He's the best ever at this. That's why Chapter 3, verse 1 says, this saying is trustworthy because anytime you get the honor of imitating Jesus, that is a noble task. And that's why Paul says that biblical leadership is grounded in Christ. There's all sorts of theories of ethics. Uh, if you go to business school, you'll hear different theories of ethics. The Bible knows of only one theory. He's not a theory. He's a person. His name is Jesus. Biblical leadership is grounded in Christ, tethered to Christ, and always points to Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed. And those were intentionally written words because a decade, more than a decade before Paul wrote these words, he was nearly torn to pieces in Ephesus by a riot of Ephesians who yelled, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And now, and Paul didn't forget that, he responds, Great is, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis Schmartemis. Great. You want to hear about something great? You want to hear about someone? Let me tell Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery. Mystery. We're not talking about the fictional Da Vinci Code mystery. We're not talking about that. In the Bible, the word mystery means this. Mystery in the Bible is a secret that's no longer a secret. A secret that's no longer a secret. A divine truth revealed. And that's why Paul says the greatest divine truth revealed, the secret that's no longer a secret, is Jesus. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That's the gospel story. And it's the real thing. It's not just a secret. It's a story. And it's not just any old story. It's the true story of the God who became human and who now rules the entire world, heaven and earth. And this mystery won't lead you into a secret, private, religious life. Oh, no, no, no. It'll change your life and lead you out into the world a new way of life, a new way of service, a new way of love, of faith, and of hope. And Jesus depicts this as the truest and best leader ever. He overcame the greatest temptation 
of leadership, which is the temptation of power. Those who lead have the power to make things happen that they want to have happen. Those who lead have the power to accomplish goals that they want, goals that they desire. Leadership's biggest temptation is desire mixed with power. And the passion of the will does what the ego wants done instead of the self-denial that leads us to do what God wants. And Jesus just flips this in verse 16. He challenges me more than I really would rather him when he says that the way of glory is suffering. The way of resurrection is crucifixion. The way of victory is self-denial. That's leadership. So we go back to the question. How do you treat your wife? In June of this year, uh, Dr. Robertson McQuilkin died. Robertson McQuilkin uh, was at one time the president of Columbia International University a Christian school in Columbia, South Carolina. He'd had quite a career uh, in missions and local church leadership, pastoring. Um, in his early 60s, after serving as the president of Columbia International University for 22 years, he resigned from there to give full-time care to his wife, Muriel as she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And he had loving, godly brothers and sisters in Christ who urged him to consider hiring help to take care of her full-time so that he could continue with his ministry. But he did not do that. And this is what he said in his resignation letter. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision making on major decisions, but one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one. Because circumstances dictated it. Muriel now, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when she's with me all the time. And almost never happy when she's not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped. She becomes very fearful, sometimes almost filled with terror. And when she can't get to me, there's anger and there's distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy, she's contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part. It's not just that I'm a man of my word. But it's just the fair thing. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. But it's, but it's more than that. It's not that I have to care for her. It's that I get to. I love her dearly. She's a delight. And it is a great 
honor to care for such a wonderful person. Now, church family, that is the kind of leadership that makes people mistake you for Christ. That's what that looks like. And so I'll close by revising something that was said earlier. Leadership is not about titles and office and money. It's about responsibility, and it is. My revision is this. Leadership is more than a responsibility. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. Heavenly Father, this quality of leadership to which you call us, this character of leadership to withstand the demands of reality is nothing less than the path of our King taking Him to the cross. And Lord, we need your help. We need your strength delivered to us one day at a time. We need your strength so that we can be the kind of people that you've called us to be. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has fallen upon us and is infused in the life of this church family so that we may believe the word when it says that we are the household of God, the church of the living God, holding up with our lives truth, true truth, truth that nourishes us, truth that lights this world. Truth that we can stand on and stand under. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Help us be more like Him. For Your glory and the good of Your people. And God's people said, Amen.